Welcome to the Jewelry Connoisseur Podcast. And now your host, Sonia Estrasoltani. Welcome to this new episode of Jewelry Connoisseur. I'm your host today, Sonia Estrasoltani. I'm the Editor-in-Chief at Rappaport. And my guest is Sarah Duncan. Hi, Sarah. Hello. Hi, Sarah. Sarah is the jewelry historian and auctioneer. She's based in London and she established the jewelry department at Chiswick Auctions um, three years ago, I think. Yeah, just over three years ago now. Long time. <laughs> <laughs> and Sarah specializes in jewelry uh, from the late Georgian period to the late 20th century, which is uh, fantastic because today our subject is Victorian jewelry, which um, we hear from estate dealers is becoming more and more popular among uh, self-purchasing women. They, they love Victorian motifs, style and materials. And Sarah is going to tell us a bit more about uh, this fascinating area that we too often only associate with mourning jewelry and the Queen Victoria, but there's so much more. So today, Sarah is going to, to tell us a bit more about this. Hi, Sarah. So first of all, how do you define Victorian jewelry beyond it was during Victoria, Queen Victoria of England? <laughs> Sonia, thank you so much for having me first off. Um, but yes, I think Victorian jewellery is becoming really, really popular. It's um, a style that is very broad and uh, all widely expansive in both its time and its themes. Um, Victorian jewellery, as you say, yes, it is jewellery that was made under the reign of Queen Victoria. And I think that's um, important for us always to remember because there was a lot of other countries out there who were making absolutely gorgeous jewelry, but it wouldn't be appropriate to attribute it to, to a, you know, the Victorian time period because really you had to be sort of within the British Empire, um, particularly in in the UK, to to really classify something as Victorian jewelry. So French examples from the 19th century are sometimes erroneously called Victorian, but it, it wouldn't have um, an appropriate title. Um, but yeah, I mean, Queen Victoria was. One of our longest serving monarchs in this country. She uh, reigned for over 63 years. So it's a pretty wide period of time that we're talking about, but hopefully we can narrow it down to a few themes. Today. What were the most important influencers beyond, um, in addition to Queen Victoria who set the tone for what the aristocracy and the, the ladies who wanted to be fashionable were wearing? Yes, I think that's one of the really interesting things about the Victorian period is that this is the first time we really had that emergence of the middle class. Um, and this is something that is pretty unprecedented in history. So women and men who, who wore jewelry um, were able to have a much wider access to jewels than ever before. But in terms of influence, it really did come from the top down. So when Victoria became queen, it coincided with a lot more publishing. So there are very detailed reports in the daily newspapers and in the new emergence of women's magazines that would detail in incredible, incredible, minute detail what she, what Queen Victoria would wear, what her ladies in waiting would wear, um, including their jewels. So they really were the trendsetters, the influencers of the time. And this trickled down into society. Later in the Victorian period, we get the emergence of high profile theater stars who start influencing 
trends and thematic uh, contributions to both fashion and to jewelry. But in the mid, you know, the mid period of the 19th century, it really was led by Victoria herself and her court. And just to, to concentrate a bit more, I mean, it's impossible actually not to concentrate on Victoria first and then to do a wider overview, but the young Victoria is wearing different pieces from an elder. What were the the first items she was wearing that became popular and that the aristocracy and the high, upper middle class wanted to, to emulate? Yes, I think one of the fun things about the Victorian period is the earlier period. Um, so Queen Victoria took the throne, well, she became queen in, in 1837. And we too frequently focus on the latter half of her reign, where she became this very austere woman clad in black, not very um, smiley or uh, <laughs> friendly looking, very, very serious. But the first part of her years as a queen she was incredibly dynamic. I mean, she took the throne at 18, which is so very, very young. And it was interesting because throughout Europe, there was quite a, there was quite a few young courts. So it was quite a fun time um, to be uh, lucky enough to be at a European court. But Queen Victoria in particular really threw herself into it. And particularly once she found Albert and was happily married, she really had a lot of fun. And... Um, the parties and the events that they used to to host were absolutely fantastic. There was a period where they were doing these um, costume balls. Uh, the French court did them as well. They were a popular theme at European courts. These costume balls were spectacularly indulgent and luxurious. Thousands and thousands of people were employed to make the costumes and Queen Victoria would have jewelry made just for these events. So she would have her jewels reset, redesigned and worn for these absolutely over the top scandalous events. What were the, some examples of jewelry she was wearing? Can you tell us? Well, they think that one of her most famous tiaras, the emerald tiara and the matching necklace, which um, until very recently was on display at Kensington Palace, might have actually been made for one of these costume balls. And this is one of the most iconic Victorian tiaras that she had. But the costume balls would would sort of encapsulate uh, different themes. And this one in particular was more of a medieval theme. So she had this eye-wateringly, jaw-droppingly beautiful tiara made for a, a fancy dress party. <laughs> of course. <laughs> if you're, you know, also soon to be an empress of her. Of her. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and well, that's very interesting because I think, you know, in, during Victorian times, there's also a lot of revival, revival from ancient motifs, revival of... Uh, historical period, the Etruscan and this type of things that were very interested for, interesting for the time because of archaeologists discovering. But um, what about the materials? I, I would like us more to uh, more concentrate on actually how innovative the Victorian jewellery period was in terms of materials and gemstones used uh, during that time that we sometimes to be reminded Absolutely. So this is one of the things that makes the Victorian period really unique for us as jewellery historians and even for designers and lovers of jewellery nowadays. We live in a world where gemstones are very, very precious. But 200 years ago, they were even more precious. 
the idea of using jewelry, antique jewelry, continuously didn't really exist. Um, it's the reason why Renaissance jewels, um, 16th century, 17th century, etc., are so terribly rare is because you wouldn't keep something that wasn't in fashion in your jewelry box. Women would have their jewels remade or sold or swapped. They wouldn't hold on to something that they don't want because the gold was so very, very precious. The gemstones were so very, very precious. What happened is that in the 19th century, early 19th century and mid 19th century in particular, the, the world all of a sudden was given a boost in resources. So you think about the California gold rush in 1849, the 49ers, and then the Australian gold rush a few years later, 1851. Um, so all of a sudden, gold floods onto the market. There's so much more gold available than there ever was before. And people were able to change the way they constructed jewels. So a lot of Victorian jewelry or a lot of Georgian jewelry would be much more heavily set with silver. So with jewelry and with diamonds, as we all know, you, you want the diamonds to be set against a white metal because it makes diamonds brighter. Um, you know, you don't want a tint of yellow influencing the color. So we see very, very heavy silver settings, but silver isn't terribly strong. So you want some gold in that setting to reinforce the strength of the piece. So now all of a sudden with this flood of gold, this glut of gold onto the market, you see the ratios changing. You see a lot more gold and then just a very thin layer of silver. Later, obviously, we get platinum, but there's a lot more resources available. Even before this, what I think is really, really fascinating is the availability of gemstones. So up until the 1700s, basically, all, gems, all diamonds, for instance, would have come from India. And then all of a sudden, in 1725, you get Brazilian diamonds. And then 100 years later, you get Russian diamonds. So diamonds start coming onto the market from new places and in bigger numbers. But then, of course, the thing that really tips the balance is the South African diamond rush in 1870s, 1869 onwards. So all of a sudden, you're getting diamonds flooding onto the market. Other gemstones as well um, became much, much more available in the 19th century. So one of the most interesting ones I've always thought was amethyst. So before the discovery of amethyst in Brazil, Russia was the only place to get them. And they were very, very valuable. Amethysts were considered as valuable as rubies or emeralds. And then all of a sudden, you find that you can get amethyst in huge numbers. So this is when we start seeing the very classic Victorian amethyst pearls, these rivieres of amethyst necklace, etc., which would have been unheard of before. They were so incredibly rare before. So yes, you start seeing a lot more raw materials enter the market and all of a sudden jewelry changes forever. And I think there's also a time of more machinery making actually uh, on, on a grander scale. It's not just handmade, but 19th century is actually also the, the century of uh, the Industrial Revolution. And it seems like it's easier to make jewelry for a wider, bigger audience. Absolutely. So Birmingham in the UK really became one of the, um, the hubs of this 
machine-made jewelry. Now, I think it's a bit of a fallacy to use the term machine-made because really all jewelry has to be hand-finished. Even today, you're hand-finishing the jewelry. But being able to make links and different elements of the jewel in mass production really transformed this middle market jewelry, the accessibility of jewels. One of the most sort of iconic jewels of the Victorian period is the snakes that we see, these beautiful sinuous snakes that move so gorgeously across um, the wearer's neck or wrist. And really those would have only been possible in an affordable way with the advent of machinery. So those bodies, each one very different. So the molds would have to have been made for each tiny little elements, segments of the body. And then they were hand finished, hand produced, but they really couldn't have been possible without the machinery. And yes, Birmingham in particular became the hub of that, that large push towards industrialization in the jewelry world, which helped fill the the, the, the huge demands that this mo- emerging middle market had for jewellery. Was the middle market or the mainstream as interested in unusual materials? Because we, we see some Victorian jewellery that is made with elephant hair, um, with uh, really quirky, quirky elements, quirky materials. Is it something that was more for the trendsetters of the time or is it something that was also widely appreciated and uh, and used among among jurors I think it was widely appreciated I think the trend starts at the top and trickles down um so Prince Albert for instance brought a lot of very interesting Germanic customs to the English court one of the more unusual ones was the setting of teeth from hunts. So stag's teeth in particular, Queen Victoria and Albert completely obsessed with Scotland um, when they took the Balmoral estate and they would have these amazing parties, Scottish parties and hunts and Albert, like all English gentlemen, well, all European gentlemen, I suppose, was a great hunter. And so Queen Victoria actually has a necklace, had a necklace that was really beautifully made, sort of almost like um, a Giuliano fringe necklace, but each little element was a stag's tooth. And on the back of it, he had engraved the date when the stag was killed. Garrod's ledgers are full of all of these quirky little requests for, um, you know, teeth. They even had their children's teeth, um, you know, baby teeth put in into jewelry. Um, so yes, the the precedence usually starts at the top, but became very widely ingrained within um, society. There was a lot of unusual material, as you say. Um, you know, some of them the more controversial in terms of how we perceive them would be the hunting souvenirs. Um, So, you know, the tiger claws from exhibitions in India, hunting exhibitions in India. These became popular even outside of of Europe. Tiffany in the the 1870s lists tiger's claws as as their must-have Christmas gifts. Um, Even in in the US, they even went so far as to include alligator's teeth in this must-have Christmas gift list. (laughs) Bloomingdale's was selling them. Um, But other things, perhaps less ferocious, but also equally 
um, unusual would be the complete fascination with hummingbirds that you see in um, Victorian jewelry. These are very rare now um, because as you can imagine, having a hummingbird survive for as long as um, is necessary to have good examples isn't something that's going to come across at the average sort of estate jeweler's desks. But there are taxidermy examples of hummingbirds that usually their heads suspended from earrings or in necklaces. And um, yes, the Victorians tended to like to embrace the more unusual. That's fascinating because what, what I guess you, you see very different um, pieces coming from that time as, as an auctioneer. What, what are the most popular or the most easily translatable into our, our 21st century um, as you said, you know, some animal teeth or some more hunting, hunt-associated uh, jewels wouldn't appeal the same way. What, what are the, the Victorian jewels that you see uh, coming to auction and actually being still very much in demand? Well, I think there's a wide range of Victorian jewels that are in demand. I mean, yes, there were the most extraordinary, quirky examples, as you say, but The fact, there was, you know, a, a huge spectrum of much more traditional jewels. So the snakes that I mentioned are perennial favorites. Everyone always loves these snakes because of the way that they were made, the beauty of their movements. But a lot of the more, you know, sort of borderline quirky ones. So the stars, for instance, the Victorian uh, scientific developments in astronomy really pushed forward these sort of beautiful star tiaras that are now mainly seen as brooches. Those were widely popular. And there's a pretty broad spectrum. I can't really narrow it down too much. Morning jewelry is something which continues to perform very, very well, which I find very fascinating because people can be quite polarized on morning jewelry. And indeed, the, the British public was quite polarized on it. When Albert died, the whole country did go into mourning. But when the mourning was lifted, people did kind of shake it off very quickly. Queen Victoria stuck with it, but most people shook it off for um, obvious reasons of frivolity and, and just generally liking to wear something besides black for a while. <laughs> <laughs> what can you um, describe a bit more? What's the mourning jewelry uh, that would that would still be appealing today with this uh, goth? Uh, associations, I guess, but also uh, sentimental jewelry. Yes. So jewelry that has meaning, I think, is one of the most important types of, of all the jewels. And, and we always have a sentimental attachment to our jewelry. But a lot of jewels were made in the sort of, you know, last 150 years or so that already had an intrinsic message attached to them. So this is what you might call sentimental jewels. And mourning jewelry does form a, a large part of that. So in the 19th century, mourning jewelry only had value to those who were actively mourning someone. Um, the secondhand market for mourning jewelry was almost non-existent in the Victorian period because they they've lost that intrinsic sentimental element. So mourning jewelry was a huge part of Victorian jewelry boxes, but it was only continued to pass on that message. Nowadays in the secondhand market, we see a lot of interest in, in mourning rings and, and mourning jewels. And people are actively trying to 
go back and find their own family's mourning jewels. So we've had incredible success here in the auction world of people who are looking to acquire their great, 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 great grandmothers, their grandfathers, et cetera's mourning jewels. I think the role that women played in mourning jewelry in particular is really interesting. One of the most unusual things that we found is that as we spend a lot of time researching the family history and the legacy behind these mourning jewels, is that very often there's more detail on the physical jewels than is in a lot of the registries, particularly for women. So what we've actually done is that we've contacted the heraldry registries because a lot of information about women is missing because they weren't considered as important. But we have the jewel sitting on our desks that says when she was born and when she died. And that's really important information, which jewelry is starting to fill in the gaps for in the official registries and records of this country. That's fascinating. That is really fascinating. It's a neat little um, element because jewelry was so female focused, I suppose. I mean, men wore mourning jewelry in huge numbers, but it was very female focused. It was a woman's domain. And that means that there's a lot of information in these jewels that wouldn't really appear maybe anywhere else. And that's so interesting. And what about the more, as you mentioned before, frivolous um, items that come to, to auction, that come to estate dealers? You mentioned the star motifs that's often contemporary designers actually get inspired by all these Victorian motifs and use, use or reinterpret in their own creations. But from the original time, where would be today someone who's interested in Victorian jewellery? What, what jewels would they more likely go and collect? So people who collect ju- Victorian jewellery can, can tend to focus on particular time periods or particular designers There's a lot of themes in Victorian jewelry that allow a, a truly passionate collector to focus quite narrowly. So I've seen a lot of collectors who focus specifically on the works of maybe the Phillips, you know, John Phillips or, or John Brogdon or Castigliani or Giuliano. And that allows them to create a very specific collection. More broadly, you can focus on themes. So you mentioned the sort of revivalist themes. So I've always been an absolute huge love of the archaeological revival uh, period and the jewels that were made. I think sadly my bank account doesn't let me become the passionate collector. I'm sure I was meant to be, (laughs) but we we can hold out for for the future. There were so many different jewels made during this long period. 63 years is a long period that there's plenty of of material for collectors out there. Um, One of the more unusual collectors is those who do tiaras. And even um, tiaras made out of imitation gemstones. So women did do a fair amount of traveling in this period. And One of the more unusual elements of this is that when you were traveling, you would be expected to dine um, and present yourself wherever you were going in the same quality and level as you would be expected if you were in London or Bath. But women didn't tend to like to travel with their jewels. They were a little concerned about security and safety of traveling with your multiple tiaras and diamond necklaces. So they would have copies 
of their jewelry made in paste. Um, and some of these were unbelievably beautifully made. So the exact same quality of frame that you would have with, with a real tiara, except that the gemstones themselves, the most important element value-wise, would be paste. And because these don't have the same financial demand, they have survived quite a lot, which I think is really, really interesting. I know that there are people who collect, you know, Victorian paste jewelry, for instance, and particularly the tiaras when they come up. And these can still sell for thousands and thousands of pounds nowadays because the workmanship is extraordinary and the styles are exactly that of the, uh, the gem set options. Yes, that's a great story. I think that that would be very interesting for for audience actually to know about this and what the actual gemstones would be the one made in out of paste. Yeah, so you, you might have two of the same made. So you might have your emerald tiara and then mm-hmm. at the same time the jeweler would make a paste example for traveling with. So they were the exact same tiaras except one set with emeralds and one set with paste. And you hope that your guest or your host wouldn't notice. <laughs> Obviously. <laughs> If everybody did the same, I think, you know, that was, uh, I'm sure it wasn't a genteel thing to mention it. <laughs> <laughs> very common though. Very, very common. <laughs> and talking about jewels that's so beyond the scope of purchase for most people, where were the most spectacular museum piece um type of jewels that came during the Victorian area that people can go and, and see in museums? Well, this is one of the most amazing things about the Victorian period is the absolute um, amazing gemstones that Victoria as a queen was given. Um, so some of the most famous gemstones in the world were given to Queen Victoria as tokens of devotion and loyalty to the crown. So, for instance, one of the most famous would be the Kohinoor diamond. So the, so the East India Company, when, when the Indian uprisings were happening um, and the Treaty of Lahore was signed um, early on in her reign, so 1849, this Treaty of Lahore made it so that the queen was to receive particularly, it's stated in black and white, that she was to receive the Kohinoor diamond. There was also the Temir ruby, which, as we all know, is, is actually a spinel included in this gift. So the jewels that were coming to the queen from India in particular were unbelievably magnificent. I mean, there's no other word. They were just magnificent gemstones that she was being given. The, the interesting story with the Kohinoor, obviously, was that when it arrived in the UK after a long, very perilous sea journey, The response to it was very muted. It arrived and very quickly became part of the Great Exhibition of 1851. And Queen Victoria lent a lot of her jewels. Other monarchs would lend their jewels to these exhibitions as well, which I think is fascinating because we didn't have Instagram. We barely had museums. Well, we, you know, museums were in their sort of early days back then. So these exhibitions were a way for the monarchs to show their wealth, to show how impressive they were, and to allow artists and designers to use them as inspiration, um, which was one of the things that Albert in particular was a huge proponent of, was 
you know, this increase in, in education and knowledge in developing industries. So the Kulinor goes on display and apparently the response was just so disappointing. They say that there was about two hours a day where the sun hit it in the right way and then the diamond showed some life. But it was a rose cut and rose cuts just don't reflect the light as well. So Prince Albert arranged for the stone to be recut and the story goes that he couldn't find a British diamond cutter. They, they really, the diamond cutting industry had virtually vanished from Britain at this time. Um, so they actually had to get diamond cutters over from, from Amsterdam, from Holland, I think. And they set up shop in Garrods, who were the crown jewelers at this point. And um, they recut the stone and they, they lost a huge amount of weight. I mean, the stone went down, I think, about 40% in weight. Um, but finally, it was considered worthwhile, <laughs> which is an amazing statement for the Colinor. But they were finally happy with it. And she had a crown made for it in 1853 with 2,000 diamonds. But then five years later, she had another one made and then another one. So the, the Colinor has gone through a few different uh, settings. But Queen Victoria was very guided by Albert in the creation of her most impressive jewels, what we tend to go and see at museums. So the sapphire coronet that's really famous, that's on display at the Victoria and Albert Museum is the most amazing design. So like we were talking about before with the snakes in flexibility and in movement, the sapphire coronet is sprung. So the same way you think of a Bulgari bangle as being sprung, this is sprung. So it could be worn at different sizes and adjustments on her head. And so she was able to style it in different ways around her hair. And it, it's just absolutely incredible workmanship. The royal collections also have um, a number of beautiful, beautiful pieces that are on display. I'm not sure if the Victoria Revealed collection is um, continuing after the lockdown at Kensington Palace, but there's some amazing jewels there on display as well. That. I mean, you know, everything you've told us today, Sarah, really made me feel like we need to travel again and be able to go and see <laughs> jewelry in, in museums and to appreciate the, the extraordinary uh, craftsmanship and value and uh, historical value that they have. The craftsmanship is just extraordinary. And I'm always that person who the guards tend to look at, you know, darkly because my nose is smushed against the glass, trying to get my head to see all the different angles of the tiaras and and the way they're made and what, what does it look like on the back? That's the most important piece, the back. As any jewelry specialist will tell you, the first thing we do is flip a jewel over. So as much as they look amazing in these museum cabinets from the front, we're always the ones with our heads at weird angles trying to see all the different 360 views. What's your favorite uh, Victorian jewel that you've come across at Shizik Options in your career? What, what's the one that you actually would wear, you as Sarah Dunn? Oh, that's a good one. Um, one of the most spectacular pieces that we had was early on here at Chiswick. We had a gentleman and his son come in and he had a necklace that he found in a pouch. And more, more accurately, he was, a, he was a builder. And 20 years ago, he was tearing down a wall in a house and this pouch fell off and hit him in the head. And he said to the <laughs> He said to the purple, you know, can I have this? And he goes, yeah, sure, whatever. And um, inside were two necklaces. And one was a sort of Edwardian 
beautiful long necklace set with a gigantic Russian emerald. And the other was a fringe necklace that was in the Indian style and it was made by Carlo Giuliano. And he had no idea. For 20 years, he kept this in a pouch. He had had an insurance valuation done on it and they didn't tell him it was by Giuliano or anything of any note. And he brought it in one day because they were thinking of selling and they had it for so long. And we took one look at it and my eyes just popped out of my head. (laughs) So I, I think that would be one I would love to have. One of the more special ones, which is slightly later, but I always remember this and I was thinking about it, talking about the South African diamond rush was actually, um, it was a, a, a garnet bracelet that was previously owned by uh, a woman named Evelyn McCarty. And for those who know much about the, um, the history of the South African gold rush, William McCarty was the first manager of the Premier Mine where the Cullinan diamond had been found. And he, you know, those famous pictures of the guys holding the Cullinan diamond, he's one of those three guys. You think he's the one on the left. And it was his great grandson who came in and he had actually been born in the house that they had lived on in the mine. It's now a museum there. Um, And he, you know, wanted to sell it. And it was a very simple thing. It wasn't terribly unusual, but the history around it made it so fascinating that it, it did very, very well at auction, as the Juliana one did, of course. But yeah, people people get very excited about a bit of history and Victorian jewelry has plenty of that to offer. And I'm sure, I mean, you know, after this podcast, I hope they will go and, and read a bit more and look at catalogues and see a bit more about Victorian jewelry, because I think it's such a, a fascinating area. And, um, and I'm not surprised that, you know, it gets so much interest from contemporary collectors. So thank you so much, Sarah, for this, I think, fascinating overview. So, so much uh, to take on and to, to actually you open so many different uh, pieces and routes to, to explore further. Thank you so much. A pleasure. I think one of the most important things about Victorian jewellery for people who are interested in antique jewellery is it's very all-encompassing. I mean, price points for Victorian jewellery can start very low. I mean, not maybe not even £100 sometimes. So there really is something out there for everybody. You can start a collection, you know, with simple examples and build up to the more elaborate and beautiful and rare because this was a time where people were wearing jewelry and they were saving it. They weren't resetting it, recycling it. They were saving their jewelry because of the amazing influx of materials. And I think if those, if people out there now want to start looking at Victorian jewelry, you can build a collection. There's so many themes and so many styles and so many price points that make it very accessible. That's fantastic. Thank you so much, Zara. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for having me, Sonia. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks for joining us at the Jewelry Connoisseur Podcast. If you enjoyed this and would like more top quality jewelry content, check out the Jewelry Connoisseur blog at jewelryconnoisseur.net. 